You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flicks. Pod Awful. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Welcome to paradise. As Eternals achieved total consciousness, sleep became obsolete. The brutal is now in fourth hour of unconscious sleep. Beyond 2001. All this technology was for travel to the distant stars. Another dead end. 20th Century Fox presents a John Borman film. Zardoz. How did we conjure up a monster in our midst? Replay his last memory moments. Continuation of the trial of George Seden of Vortex 4. I am innocent of psychic violence. For this you will be aged 50 years, no less. And in the end, Zardoz recreated man. Vote, please. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is my intrepid co-host, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Can someone change my red diaper, please? Also with us in the Wastelands this week is our old pal, Josh Johnson. Hello, happy to be here. This week we are talking about John Borman's 1974 film, Zardoz. The film is a fantastic trip into the future, where the haves, the Eternals, are on one side, while the have-nots, the Brutals and the Exterminators, are on the other. An exterminator, Zed, crosses into the land of the Eternals via the Vortex, via this big, great stone head of his god, Zardoz. Once in the Vortex, Zed upsets the seemingly ordered life of the bourgeoisie. Zardoz is one of several sci-fi films from the early 70s which showcase societal problems through often psychedelic visuals. Josh, as our guest, let me ask you first, when did you first see Zardoz and what did you think? Well, I first uh, stumbled onto Zardoz on late night television in either 2000 or 2001, and I just saw the opening scene. And I was so uh, shocked that this is a film that existed that I immediately stopped watching uh, because I knew I wouldn't be able to finish it then and there and just rented it a few days later and watched it in its entirety with my brother. So this would have been, uh, you know, the early 2000s. And I rented uh, the movie, watched it, and I didn't know what to think of it. I knew that I enjoyed it. The thing that was really a challenge for me was to decide if the movie worked on its own terms or if what I was enjoying about it was coming from, you know, something else altogether, if I was appreciating the movie in a way different than how Borman intended it. What would have that way been, sir? I feel like Borman is being very sincere. I mean, I I think he understands that it's an absurd film, but I think it's actually a very heartfelt movie. 
And I found oftentimes that I was sort of laughing at certain things. And I, I wasn't certain if uh, I was intended to be laughing along with the film or if the film was uh, unintentionally funny. And to be honest, I'm still not sure. But I do ultimately think that Borman made a sincere film and that the statement is genuine. I did not see Zardoz in its entirety until you asked me to watch it. I had seen bits of it because uh, there was a guy that I worked with at the movie theater years ago, and he used to do a um, public access show. And what he would do with a public access show was he had this thing with just wanting to edit all these images together to music for about a half hour or an hour. So it wasn't like a talk program or anything. And one of the ones that he showed me was he used all of this imagery from Zardoz, the head and various things with them on the horses. And and then he also, I think, was cutting to Planet of the Apes because he saw some sort of similar idea there with the guys on the horses. And... I never watched it past that because um, being Scottish-American, Sean Connery (laughs) is a patron saint of all Scottish-American households. And especially growing up in my house, whenever there was a Sean Connery movie on, it had to be watched. My mother would turn it on. So, of course, all of the James Bond films were, you know, high canon. This was very important stuff. But uh, Zardoz didn't play on TV, so therefore I didn't really get to see it. Although I'm sure that if it was on, my mom probably would have watched it, or she would have turned it off because it was just too weird of a Sean Connery movie. So I didn't get a chance to see it until, like I said, you told me to watch it. And for me, I've got several different things that, um, that, that I can say about it. I only got a chance to watch it once. I've been kind of busy. But um, it definitely is, as we were saying, something that lives in that sweet spot that both you and I really seem to love, Mike, and that's that 1970s period of film. And uh, it reminds me of other films I'll get into and even other literature pieces that uh, talk about uh, similar ideas that would have been, I think, popular uh, within that era. I think I saw this one on cable the first time, and like you guys, I really didn't know what the hell to think of this thing when I saw it. It felt very convoluted, and I really kind of just left it at that until a few years ago when I was reading a review of the DVD when that first came out, and they were talking about... You know, you need to see this DVD with the audio commentary. The audio commentary explains what the hell is going on in this movie. And I said, okay, yeah, I'm down for that. So I actually went out and bought it. And not only does the audio commentary really add to this movie as far as kind of giving a little bit of an inkling as to what Borman was thinking with a lot of this stuff. Because, I mean, it's it's not that dense of a text all the way through, but there are times where it feels like there are some ideas that are started that aren't really finished, and I always felt like maybe I was lacking something, but luckily it was very refreshing to hear Borman talk on the commentary that he tried to do a lot of things and he wasn't altogether successful. There's even a part in the audio commentary towards the end where he says, I'll cut this down a bit if I was doing it again. It's a little bit too long. I, I was terribly pleased with it at the time. Couldn't bear to lose any of these shots, but they could certainly be a little shorter. So you can fast forward this bit if you want to. I've <laughs> never heard a director <laughs> say that on an audio commentary before. So I, I was impressed. One thing is right there that you explained it is that you needed sort of a guided tour to figure out what was going on. And I think that means, at least to me, that the film is a failure. Because if you're an artist or you're a creative person, you should be able to get your ideas across uh, what you want to get them across. But um, 
even though I think that people would look at it and go, yeah, this is kind of a mess and there's a lot going on in it. I actually had what I would call the um, the way home experience, even though I did watch this on my couch in my house. I didn't have to go anywhere to see it. No shit, man. I guess that's why they call it a way homer. Why is that? Because you only get it on the way home. I'm already home, man. The film left me with a lot to think about afterward, and I think I appreciated it after it was done more than when I was watching it. What I think I admire most about Zardoz, and I think probably anybody that has affection for this movie uh, would point out the same thing, is that what it does have is uh, ambition. It's very audacious. You know, the one thing that you hear people say over and over when they're talking about this movie is, I can't believe this exists. Or, you know, it's shocking that this is a movie that anybody would ever make. And on that commentary, you know, Borman does sort of explain how he was able to make it uh, at home. And, uh, you know, not far from where he lived, I think like some of it is like actually right behind his house because of the success of Deliverance. But it, what's so fascinating about the film is just that a film with all of these ideas, convoluted though they may be, would ever make it onto a screen with, at that time, arguably the biggest movie star in the world. It's a pretty one of a kind experience just in that regard from a, a film history perspective. Connery was pretty hot. I mean, he was very hot himself, but he was just a few years off of the James Bond gig. This was only, I think, his second film that he made after he was Bond, and obviously known worldwide at this point, and just that he was okay putting on that outfit. And really, that's the first thing that strikes you. At least it strikes me, the first thing right out of the gate, is Sean Connery with the bandoliers and the red diaper really is a very striking image, almost as striking as the giant stone head going through the air. When he's got that fabulous ponytail as well, Connery is somebody that you hear all the time mentioned as you know such a heartthrob, and people find him to be incredibly attractive. And he was at the height of uh, his uh, heartthrob status, you know, coming off of the Bond films then. And they have him in this outfit that reveals a lot of his body and you know, has a very sexual kind of design. And yet, I don't think I've encountered one person that finds his appearance erotic in Zardoz. He is this kind of symbol of masculinity so much in this film, but you're right. There's nothing... Yeah, I don't really find him that sexy. I don't even really find the woman who rides around on a horse naked all that sexy. I don't know if it's just because... I'm trying to pay too much attention to everything else that's going on in the film, but I certainly am not there for that kind of eye candy because there's so much other stuff going on. I also find it funny that it's him because obviously when we talk about the, the, the quotable line in the front of the film, The gun is good. The gun is good. The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men. He kind of represents both as James Bond. Not only just the sexuality, but also being the gun, being the killer. I guess we should talk a little bit more about the plot as we go along here. And I don't think that we can or should get into every nuance in this thing because there's just so much going on. But I think just kind of a general overview kind of thing. Because really it's kind of like, Zed's day out, you know, he's see him at the beginning and he's there and he's supposed to be, he's one of a group of what they call exterminators ride around on horseback and basically shoot anything that moves, any person that they see, they're going to shoot, which is kind of a weird thing. And I found out while I was doing research on this, I read the script and I read the novelization and really what 
isn't conveyed very well, I think, and you guys tell me if you got this or not, that the exterminators are out there killing the brutals, but really they're tr- they're trying to purify the human race. The brutals are supposed to be mutants, basically. Like they're described in the book, like there's two-headed ones, there's ones missing limbs, there are you know just these kind of monstrous creatures. Did either of you guys pick that up at all? No, I definitely did not pick that up. No, the only thing that I got was sort of a reference to genocide, obviously, and possibly eugenics or something like that, that we want you to kill off people because they're bad or they're just not, you know, there's too many people. Maybe it's a overpopulation issue, something like that. Which, that, that was the only thing I got. I didn't get, you know, basically the reasoning behind it. The only thing that I got was connecting it to religion, being that Zardoz is this godhead that's prayed to, and the idea that the godhead tells you to do something, so you do it. Right. And he tells them to go out and kill, and then we find out a little bit later on in the film that he has switched his orders from going out and kill to go out and make people harvest the land, start growing grain. And Zardoz, rather than just spitting out guns to the exterminators, has started to give them seeds. And that's another thing that I think is in the book and in the script that doesn't really come through, is that Arthur Frayne, this character who we see at the very beginning of the film, this kind of prologue that's tacked on, like literally, well, not literally, there aren't tacks in the films, but it was tacked on, late in the game to try to explain what was going on. And that's one thing that Borman says, you know, wasn't necessarily successful either. And Frayne is Zardoz. He is the man behind the curtain when it comes to this. And one of the things other than magic that he's into, he's very into magic and trickery. He's this kind of like Loki character is that when Zed ends up at Arthur Frayne's house that there are all these like different seeds and there's this greenhouse with all these you know hybrid plants and so there's eugenics not eugenics in this sort of sense there's breeding of plants to make stronger hardier plants that will produce more so not only do you have the outside world being this kind of petri dish for Arthur Frayne as far as you, this eugenics program and him breeding these exterminators the way that Zed talks about how he was chosen and his you know his mother and his father were chosen but you also have the idea of the plants and that they're these kind of chosen things as well and this whole idea of Zed not being able to kill is kind of what motivates him to to find out more about Zardoz and make this decision to jump into the mouth of his god and to be inside of it as it goes around its journey and goes back into the vortex. And he's the first brutal to violate, and I do mean that in a sexual way, violate the vortex. You talk about the prologue sort of being an add-on, and I think that actually for me the prologue set up an ability for me to watch the film in a way that I understood that what I was about to see was some sort of literary satire or something. I am Arthur Frayne, and I am Zardoz. I have lived 300 years, and I long to die, but death is no longer possible. I am immortal. I present now my story, full of mystery and intrigue, rich in irony, and most satirical. 
It is set deep in a possible future, so none of these events have yet occurred. But they may. Be warned, lest you end as I. In this tale, I am a fake god by occupation and a magician by inclination. Merlin is my hero. I am the puppet master. I manipulate many of the characters and events you will see. But I am invented, too, for your entertainment and amusement. And you, poor creatures, who conjured you out of the clay? <laughs> Is God in show business, too? I think if the film just started with the head and the guns and the introduction of Connery and all that stuff, that it would have, uh, it, in my mind at least, tried to have played that this is a reality, that this is a real world, that these are real people, these are real things. And I think that what the prologue, what the prologue does is it allows me to go, okay, uh, what I'm seeing is, is a satire because of some of the things that he says. What Borman does with that prologue is to set up the whole idea that what we're going to see is going to be a farce on uh, faith, on religion, on mythology, on um, you know trickery, and, and all of these things that this magician character represents. I think that's an accurate assessment, and I think that that prologue, interestingly enough, is one of the reasons that I found myself having difficulty determining the tone of the film, though, because... He comes on and he says these things that do set up what's going to come, and it's very heavy on exposition. But it also seems to be designed to, uh, like Rob said, you know, indicate that what is going to follow is going to be something of a farce. And this makes me feel as though, you know, it's okay to recognize the absurdity and somewhat, you know, kind of laugh at the outlandishness of some of it. But then so much of the film seems uh, to be so sincere and to have uh, no humor at a, a, you know, surrounding it at all. And starting it that way, like, really confused the tone for me and made it difficult for me to determine how I was intended to be responding to it. And, you know, on some level, it doesn't matter. I'm going to have the experience with the film that I'm going to have. But I do remember uh, because that prologue comes out right away and it seems to establish a sort of tone that isn't necessarily, in my mind, consistent throughout the movie. It does uh, make the audience kind of question what they're seeing uh, and of course, he's also talking about illusion and that, you know, it sets you up to question what you're seeing. So I find the most satisfying thing about the film is actually uh, always questioning what's going on and how you should feel about it. It's a much more active experience than most films. There's nothing passive about watching Zardoz. It doesn't watch over you. You're always kind of uh, either being questioned or forced to ask questions. And I like that about it. I can understand what you mean about that tonal shift, because that opening to me opens up the door for something and it's going to be an odd comparison like animal farm or something like it's like reading Orwell or it's like reading uh, Huxley where you have it set up that they're going to create this absurdist or sort of hyper real scenario in order to pull out the, the humanity or the topic that they really want to talk about. And I think that there is that in Zardoz without the prologue, but I think what the prologue does is it sets it up for you to look for it more. And at least that's what it did for me when I first watched it. The Arthur Frame character coming at the beginning might be a good thing just because everyone else inside of the Vortex is so 
apathetic. I mean, there are the the literal apathetics that live inside of there, but the two main people that he interacts with are these two women, May and Consuela. Uh, Consuela, played by Charlotte Rampling, and May, played by Sarah Kestelman. And they're almost interchangeable to me at times, even though May is much more sympathetic to Zed, who is Sean Connery, than uh, Consuela. Consuela really just wants to eliminate him almost as soon as he comes in. But the way that their voices are, um, they almost speak with the same voice at times. I don't know if that makes sense, but it feels like the way that their their language is patterned and everything feels very similar to me. So you could almost switch out one actress with the other. And the only other person that he interacts with, with any, I won't say a great deal, is the guy named Friend, played by John Alderton, who is kind of like... Arthur Frayne, but he's really super cynical, and he also just feels like kind of beat down by the world. It just feels like the people that he is interacting with in the vortex they don't i don't I don't really know how Arthur Frayne would fit in with them just because he seems so much more lively than the rest of the people that are inside of the vortex. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think one of the interesting things about watching uh, the other actors is that, you know, they are very limited in terms of what they're able to do. You know, everybody is so uh, effectless and uh, disconnected within the vortex that there's not a lot of range that you can really show as an actor. And I, I think that's why you end up, like you were saying, uh, with the two female characters that seem to be speaking the same way, that their characters almost being interchangeable. What I like most about that is that unlike the rest of the film, which I think somewhat struggles with the world building, once you're in the vortex, because everything is sort of monotone and flat and there's a sameness to it, that for me, it almost has a quality akin to like Eraserhead, where it plunges you into a very specific feeling and then doesn't change, you know, rather than being like a roller coaster ride, like a lot of films are for a pretty significant amount of time, uh, it's actually, there's no, uh, you know, valleys or peaks. Like it's really a kind of straight line and you feel kind of hypnotized by it. I, I think it's the most, uh, dramatically satisfying part of the film, even though it's the part, you know, with the least actual drama. For me, the character sort of being the same there and being very flat and affectless and things like that is the mirror of what we saw in the land of the exterminators, right? because they're all active and the other place is very passive in that way. But the, also the thing that I saw is sort of a literary connection here because I was thinking about where have I seen certain things like this or what kind of comment is Brave New World with Huxley, where the world that they've created is this sort of utopia, right? And everyone is you know, getting along the best they can through taking the Soma and going to the orgies and all of these things. But there are a few who are like, isn't there more to life than this? And then it really comes into their face when John Savage comes into that place and says, look at what you're doing. Like, what is this and what is that? And this doesn't make any sense. And he starts sort of holding a mirror up to their society. And in some ways, people find it very refreshing at times. 
but at the same time, he's also deconstructing their society and, and leading to a lot of questions about sort of, you know, how how much are you willing to give up in order to not be, you know, disturbed in, in your sweet little life. So I, I was finding a lot of ideas in that way in that you could see Sean Connery's character, Zed, as this pure savagery sort of character that sort of shows them that they're, you can't have a passion in life. But the thing is, is that both are extremes where you have, he's the extreme of not only is he passionate, but he's killing people. And over on this side, they have like very little passion to no passion where you have the people that are getting the baguettes thrown at them. That's funny that you bring up Brave New World because in the commentary, Borman talks about how he was influenced by another Huxley work called After Many a Summer, which I haven't read yet, but I've read about it a little bit and talks about how it, it really addresses Huxley's in, interpretations of America and the kind of uh, narcissism and superficiality and obsession with youth that he saw when he was in America, which I, I think really kind of plays into that as well. But yeah, I totally see what you mean. I mean, you could literally call... Zed, John Savage, because there is that kind of upsetting of the apple cart so much when he comes in. I think that's a great comparison. Yeah, and uh, while the visual design of the film is very singular and sort of a product of its time to a certain degree, the core concepts that are at work in Zardoz are very much similar to you know a lot of classic sci-fi literature. I mean, it's all they're all concepts that you've seen explored there, and I think one of the great ideas in the film is that the society has found the key to immortality, has realized that they don't particularly like that, but they no longer have the ability to undo it. And, you know, that idea of, you know, creating something that you can't undo is, you know, at the core of a lot of great science fiction concepts. But here, the way that it leads to uh, the general apathy and the sort of disappointment, the disengagement from life because it was all a mistake. I think that's a really great sci-fi novel concept that here is just employed in this uh, slightly psychedelic film. And you can even go further back. You can take that back into mythology and the idea of Pandora's box, that you know, you've know you opened something and here you are, you're stuck with it. Zed is one of these, I won't say typical messiah characters, but he is very much this messiah character. He reminds me a lot of Paul Atreides from Dune, this whole idea of this breeding the perfect super being and really that's what they were doing is the the people in the vortex or at least Arthur Frayne was breeding this super being and I love the line at the end this is not a spoiler where he talks about as Zada said I was able to choose your forefathers it was careful genetic breeding that produced this mutant the slave who could free his masters <laughs> I bred you I led you and I have looked into the face of the force that put the idea in your mind your bread and led yourself. And it's this whole idea of, you know, chicken egg kind of thing, but the breeding of this super being who's going to be able to unlock these people, unleash them from the trap that they've laid for themselves. It feels like there should have been more time between when they were first made immortal and when they weren't. I mean, my impression, and I, I don't know if this is coming from which source, but I'm thinking they were only immortal for like 200, 300 years. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah. It seems like it should have been longer than that. I think that they said that Zed was like the 
fourth generation or something, at least in one of the the sources. And I don't know, that's that's pushing it a little for me that they could breed somebody, you know, like my great grandfather begat me eventually, and that I'm so different and so much better just with that few steps in that evolutionary chain. I would think it would be a couple hundred more than that, at least a thousand maybe. And then the whole idea of the, I don't know, to me, it seems like a nuclear winter outside. I mean, we see some in the, the barren landscape. I mean, we see old buildings, torn down stuff. I suppose that would have only been a couple hundred years worth of damage, but it seems like more time would have made it, I don't want to say more believable, but have it more impact that these guys have been really trapped in this immortal life for, you know, a, a, an eon rather than just a, a couple hundred years. Yeah, although I think it's something that's kind of uh, amusing about the way it's laid out now is that they've become that apathetic and disconnected and disappointed in continued living that quickly, you know, that it would only take that long before they would become uh, embittered about their own immortality. I mean, it's kind of an even more damning statement in a way because it's such a short period of time. That's a really good point. I was looking at it from the other way in that if you're going to set up this scenario where you've created a godhead and there's a whole society that's been structured, it usually takes generations and generations and generations in order for people to accept a new belief system and then a new way of doing things when we talk about sort of you know how cultures kind of shift over time and that's the one place with the whole exterminators and, and all of them that i don't see how it could have moved that fast for them like to me that had to take more time yeah and i guess the one thing too that leads me to believe that there should have been more time is the idea that the Eternals have progressed so much, just the whole idea of them kind of unlocking their own psychic abilities, the whole idea of, and they don't really necessarily explore this that much, like Consuela, when she stuns Zed with a look, you know, and, and I think Friend says later on, you know, have you ever heard the phrase, looks can kill, while well, they can hear Later on, Zed is able to conquer her stare and everything. But it seems like that ability to come up with the stun glance or whatever, you know, you, I just rolled a, a 20-sided die and came up with that. That and them doing the whole meditation and all this kind of stuff, which, again, they don't necessarily explore too much. And uh, But, you know, it's like really – I just keep spouting off ideas that are in this movie and it never seems like anything is explored as much as it could be, you know, cause we go from the idea of like psychic abilities, guided meditation, rings that project images and give information about things. And we, then we've got the, the God head concept and then we've got the the crystals, and the crystals come into play, and then the mechanism of the vortex itself. I mean, there's so many things in here. You could split off any one of these things and have a movie unto itself. But in this case, it's like this big thing of stew, and Borman just kept cutting up different vegetables. And after a while, it was just like, okay, enough. You know, I, I can't take <laughs> all of this stuff that you're giving me. And I'm afraid sometimes when I, I think the first time I watched this movie, my head just kind of shut down because there was just too much stuff going on. You could say there were maybe too many ideas in this picture. We often talk about how 
it seems that film recently lacks in ideas that they just don't have enough as you were saying this thing like went to costco and loaded up with plenty for you know 15 films the um the the other thing that uh i i find uh interesting with the film is that i think in a way this fits in with what we had discussed before on previous episodes with 1970s and you know the in search of the new age stuff this seems to fit within that category of people getting into alternative religions or or things like that yeah especially when you start talking about the crystals and you know this is like new age kind of stuff going on and the meditation and all that stuff but it is to say you know hey this really works and you know not only does it work but it will prolong your life and this kind of thing so i yeah it, there's definitely that level of exploration and then also you know 74 this was out so you know the new age movement is definitely in swing and we've got a lot of the you know different schools of thought the est and the scientology and all of that is going on right now but also we've just gone through the sexual revolution and i think that the idea of gender roles is absolutely fascinating in this film i mean the only other male character i mean the the creator of the vortex he gets a little bit gets a couple lines some of the apathetics and the renegades who are these two subgroups of the eternals some of the men in those groups get some say but really the only voices of men that we hear in the in the vortex are three guys george satan who is on trial for his impure thoughts and we kind of get some glimpses of his testimony throughout and it's fascinating with satan that what he has to say differs very much from the screenplay to the novelization which Borman co-wrote to the film. Each time it's like he's giving different excuses for why he was in violation of things. But really the two main guys that we have are Arthur Frayne, who's missing for most of the movie, and it's almost good that we had him in that prologue, and then Friend. And I don't know if it's just coincidence that both their names sound kind of similar, but it's just these are the most emasculated guys that i've ever seen and it's funny to me the way that you know they basically they imply that everyone inside of the vortex can't even get an erection anymore yeah i think it's more than implied i mean it's definitely (laughs) indicated pretty clearly that uh that sort of uh in that impotence and inability to perform is a part of that life and it's wonderful to see somebody like uh uh, Charlotte Rampling, who of course you know is gorgeous and is very much a sex symbol at the time, in a role that not only doesn't have men within the film leering at her or you know looking at her as a sex object, but that seems to be completely deconstructing the idea of women as sex objects. I mean, it's not only is it sort of ahead of its time, but it's actually reminiscent, I think, a little bit to some of the things that uh, we've seen in the past year or two, like uh, whether it's Spring Breakers or things like that that uh, seem to be attempting to deconstruct the very idea of uh, objectification and uh, how we are all uh, willing or, in some cases, unwilling participants in that in pop culture. It's taking these gigantic sex symbols like Sean Connery and Charlotte Rampling and plucking them and sticking them into this uh, kind of uh, asexual stew and uh, mocking, in a way, I think, that whole concept I think this plays in several different ways. I mean, obviously, when we get to the Eternals, it seems to be, well, it is a a land run by women. When you are in the land of the Brutals, where 
you know, Sean Connery is and Zed is the exterminator, it seems to be all men. I mean, obviously, a lot of them are wearing masks, but I'm under the impression that that's the land of the brutes. That's the land of of solid masculinity at its most taken to the extreme, and that the Eternals are the land of of the women taken to the extreme. And I'm looking, I'm thinking about this through several different lenses of the time and of the era, right? Because obviously Vietnam is going on. And at the same time, at least in the United States, you had a lot of stuff going on in terms of feminist movement, you know, the push for the Equal Rights Amendment. And you think about it in terms of, well, see, men run the world, right? So if men run everything, this would be what someone would say in that era about Vietnam. See, we got Vietnam because men run everything. If women ran everything, then it would be so much better. And I think that in a way, it's almost a satire that uh, Borman is pushing out there going, see, you can be just as bad, but from some completely different angle and obviously totally emasculate men at the same time, if you take it to its extreme. The thing that I love is Sean Connery's mustache. Sean Connery and the rest of the exterminators, they're all wearing like, I mean, you can't even call it a porno stash because this thing, its it's got a life of its own. I mean, it is fantastic. And Arthur Frayne is such an emasculated being that he can't even grow a mustache. His, his beard, his goatee is is drawn on with like, you know, mascara or a marker or something. You know, I love that like that's how powerless these guys are. And everyone, it seems like especially the men are completely powerless in there. And we see a friend being overpowered completely when it comes to him trying to avoid, you know, joining into this guided meditation, which I found interesting was not in the, the script at all. Like Frayne and friend, like friend is there for a little bit and then he drops out for a while and then pops up later on with the renegades and uh, Frayne is at the beginning and then not until the end. But there's long periods of time where we don't see Friend or Frayne, which sounds absolutely bizarre, in the script anyway. I think they did a little bit better job in the movie to keep Friend around and to show him with the Renegades a little bit sooner to kind of show his destruction. Which is odd, though, that it's like he kind of gets like that Captain Pike face going on with like half of his face is <laughs> fucked up. And then you also get the whole idea, too, with when it comes to the masculinity and femininity going on in the vortex. The, <laughs> the scene of Sean Connery in a wedding dress is just... The, that image, is it's almost better than the red diaper thing. I don't know. It's certainly more of an attack on uh, social norms than the diaper is. I think, you know, we were talking about Vietnam and other things that were going on at the time. I mean, the other thing that was going on at the time in terms of music, you have David Bowie. There's a kind of androgyny that was starting to come out in popular music. And I think you see some of those uh, impulses and some of those things reflected in uh, the visual and uh, the story concepts in Zardoz. You know, they're both... uh, present, you know, if not seeming like they're acknowledging that, they do seem to be on a kind of parallel path with some of those other things that were happening in pop culture. I think that, and I don't want to give away the end in case people want to see it, even though it is a 40-year-old film, uh, I think the end scene and the end shot really represents the idea that there is this um, meeting of the minds that needs to take place, that you can't have either, that one extreme 
or the other extreme is bad and that there's sort of this middle ground that needs to be sought after. There's that weird last image that kind of to me, you know, it harkens back to the very beginning of time, you know, the first image that a, a person had made, you know, the handprint in the cave kind of thing. And at first, and this kind of blew my mind, at first, I was thinking that they had made that mark and that everything that we saw was actually thousands or, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of years ago. And that, you know, we're just in this endless loop that, you know, we've would do the exact same thing again, that this wasn't necessarily the future, that it was the past. And then after I picked up the the remnants of my skull, I kind of said, okay, I don't think that's what Borman was going for, but it was such a powerful final image that I don't think that he could have resisted that one. It's interesting that you say that, Mike, because I had that same interpretation when I watched Ooh, it's it for not the first just time. Me. No, no, it's not. I mean, I also ultimately came to the same conclusion that it was probably not what was intended, but that was what was going through my mind when confronted with the, that scene as well. Because I was thinking, okay, not only is this pattern that we're in so set that you know we would build the same kind of buildings, but there would even be an L. Frank Baum who would write The Wizard of Oz and this exact same thing would happen again. But yeah, I, I'm glad that I'm not alone in that boat. I also think that that's a fairly interesting way to end the film. I mean, if that's what were intended, you know, it, that's not an unsatisfying ending. No, for all the stuff that has gone before, I think it kind of leaves you with the right amount of questions. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Brian Hoyle, the author of The Cinema of John Borman, after these important messages. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks, Joel M. Reed? Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in I, Iris, discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna you. Have... It was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy, and then I found out about vibrators.com. 
Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. From, from page, page to screen. To screen. So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. But sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that makes me want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theater is. For me, probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind. There's a joke for the oldies. Um, right. it'd be like, who's Prince? Who's right. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys. Going right, okay. So you're a psycho, right? Can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, and put in the search box from page to screen. I'm Dr. Brian Hoyle, and I'm a lecturer in the English and Film Studies program at the University of Dundee, and I'm also the author of the recent book, The Cinema of John Borman. So how did you get interested in the cinema of John Borman? I would say when I was much younger, really starting to get into cinema seriously, that several of Borman's films were very important influences on me and very important in sort of deciding the future direction of my career. I would say particularly those films were... um, Hope and Glory, which is probably the first one I saw at the cinema, but then um, I was sort of very early age, Deliverance, Point Blank, and Excalibur, as well actually Emerald Forest as well. And um, these were incredible films as far as I was concerned. I mean, very visually striking, very bold. At the same time, they, they, they were mainstream films, so there seemed something slightly strange and experimental about some of them. I think also coming from a sort of Anglo-American background, Borman's ability to move across the Atlantic make films as British as Hope and Glory or films at Excalibur certainly, but also a film as American as Point Blank certainly appealed to me. I've always been a, a very big fan of his work, and I think when I was looking for something to write about, I just found that no one had written a, a proper full-length book on Borman since Michel Seymour in the mid-1980s, and I thought that was, um, you know, A, an opportunity, and B, it was long overdue that someone should uh, pay Borman's films the attention they deserved, really. So what was your approach when you were writing the book? How did you want to kind of separate yourself from previous works that have been written about him? The one thing that was useful was the fact that there were few previous books. I mean, I only actually found three. Michel Simons, which was in French, but had been translated, one in Italian and one in Greek. So the field in terms of books was pretty sparse. Um, there, were, there were articles, certainly, quite a lot on films like Point Blank Deliverance, um, but less so on the new films. So everything sort of after the Emerald Forest was reasonably uncharted territory. And there's a couple of, I think, truly great films, and they're particularly the general, and I'm very, very fond of indeed. Um, and some flawed films as well. I think there always is in Borman's canon. So on one respect, it, it was good to kind of move into that uncharted territory, but I also, as much as possible, went back to 
archives, the Irish Film Institute, the British Film Institute. There's no central location where you can just look at John Borman's papers, but there are archives dotted around Europe and America where you can pick up old script drafts and memos. And um, I found um, material from George Tabori, um, who was a collaborator of Bertolt Brecht, who wrote um, the earliest draft of Borman's Lear, the last, for example, of his archive in Berlin, you know, produced some extremely interesting material. So it was partly going back to the unpublished sources of these films. I think also just really looking at the films themselves and trying to, in a way, um, sometimes even just ignore the previous critics is, is a healthy thing to do. Um, I did as much as possible, though, try and read absolutely everything I could find on him. Because I thought since it had been the first book for about 20-odd years, it was important to kind of bring the critical consensus as much as possible up to date. When did you first start this endeavor? Uh, books take a lot longer than you always think they're going to. I think I probably would have started researching the book in 2006, the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, and I think the book finally came into print October last year, so it would have been October 2012. So it, I think all in all, it was a it was a five or six year endeavour, um, but that involved a lot of research, mostly over the summers. And then finally, I'd say about a year, a year and a half in sort of the writing and proofing stage. The thing about Borman that always gets me is just how diverse his filmography is. As you were going through his films, did you find kind of central themes? The films themselves are extremely diverse. I mean, gene- generically, there is no similarity. I mean, he's made war films, he's made westerns, he's made, well, almost westerns, he's made musicals, essentially, if you count, catches if you can. And you're right, they are they are very, very diverse. But I do think there are several overarching themes and considerations that really do link them together. I mean, the most obvious is probably the notion of the quest, the journey, the, 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 the central protagonist who moves towards a goal, which may be a sort of physical goal, you know, Lee Marvin's $93,000 point blank. It may be something more amorphous and spiritual, like the, the grail in Excalibur, but there is always, I think, a goal or a grail that the characters kind of seek out. Um, there's also there's other interests as well. I mean, they're, they're very much films about um, protagonists who seem to be, at least from my point of view, at odds with their society and their surroundings. I mean, films in many ways are about sort of slightly alienated characters who either are at odds with um, nature, in the case of films like Deliverance, or at odds with the city, as in the case of films like Point Blank. And that, that's something that's really continued all the way through his work, I would say. And then there are other things. Um, his interest in, in Jung, certainly. His interest in ecology, I think, certainly comes through, um, particularly in the films after, um, ex- after and including, I would say, Exorcist Two. And also just an interest, um, and this is why I find it particularly fascinating, an interest in cinema's possibility to kind of create other worlds. Um, one or two of his films, Hope and Glory, I suppose, Deliverance, you might, you might actually call quite realist or realistic in their aesthetic, but other films, Zardoz, Exorcist Two, Excalibur, The Emble Forest, they're very dreamlike. And really, I think Borman believes in cinema as kind of an extension of dreams. And that, again, I think goes all the way through his, his filmography from the very start to the present day. I think that's what I like about Point Blank, though, is that kind of dream quality, especially the when we see Walker coming down that hallway yeah, and LAX, just the... Yeah. Oh, yeah, and the, totally. the sound of his shoes and <laughs> the way that it cuts to him uh, with his wife. 
just those kind of moments it, it really separates that film from you know something like a Jason Statham Parker film. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, is that the third or fourth attempt to film that? It's, I, I wonder why they keep remaking because I mean the, the first point blank is so definitive. I mean it's just it's one of the, I think the two or three most extraordinary American films of the late 1960s. Um, I mean, so, uh, John Frankenheimer's seconds, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, Richard Lester's Petulia, and Point Blank to me seem a complete breed apart. There, there's unlike anything Hollywood had done before, indeed since. Really, um, I mean, even Borman hasn't, I think, made. I think he's made films that are as good, but he's never made a film quite like Point Blank again with with that extraordinary combination of kind of dreamlike imagery and hard-boiled reality. It's. Um, it's a genuine one-off, really, but I think that's it, that, that, that idea that he's always interested in doing something that's greater than or above reality. Um, for him, film is not, I think, a realist medium, and that separates him, I think, from the, the sort of mainstream of British film, uh, which, for better or worse, has always been, has always sort of attracted realists and attracted critics with a preference towards realism, but certain British filmmakers from, I, I guess, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburg are leading through people like Borman, Ken Russell, Nicholas Rogue, Derek Jarman, Peter Greenaway have kind of taken this less traveled path of um, dreamlike imagery, fantasy, and non-realism. And Borman, to me, seems to be the most, not sort of the most interesting person in his work, but um, he's certainly up there, but just the, the one who seems to have crafted the most successful international career out of doing something that is slightly strange and uh, unique, in, in, at least in British film terms. So where do you see Zardoz fitting into his filmography? <laughs> it's both. Um, if, if we wanted to talk in terms of the successful films, Zardoz is a sort of a marginal work. But if we wanted to talk about Borman as an auteur, if you will, I think he is one of the few filmmakers I would go as far as to call an auteur. I'm very guarded about using that word because film is such a collaborative process. But Zardoz very much seems to be Borman's work, um, despite working with several key collaborators on it. I think in terms of its, its themes, in terms of its imagery, etc., it really does belong right in the middle of Borman's filmography. Um, I think sometimes there's a tendency to try and push it too far to the margins, because it's such an unusual work. Um, but the one thing I will say about Zorondos as well is that since writing the book, obviously you, you, you write the first book on someone for 20 years, and invariably some admirers, fellow admirers of Borman, perhaps such as yourself, kind of come out of the woodwork and say, I've, I've seen your book, I'm very interested in talking about this. Zongros, this is the film that's been mentioned more than any other. So it seems that it really is the one that has actually attracted a loyal, if not fanatical following. And I'm, the more I sort of acquaint myself with the film, I think the more I start to understand why. Um, on, a, I mean, on a personal note, it was the chapter I wrote first. Because I knew it was going to be the hardest, um, Zardoz and Exorcist 2. And because um, I think, in many respects, they're the least critically and commercially successful, but also the ones that are considered to be the biggest follies, really. Although Zardoz was actually a very low budget film. Um, and actually, particularly in the case of Zardoz, I, I found that I had so much to say. Um, I think 7,000 words on Zardoz in the final book, but I wrote at least 14,000 <laughs> initially because it just is one of those films that's it's so dense, it's too dense. There's too much going on. And I think that's really the thing about Borman is that he, he has an idea and he starts working on that idea. Then he has another idea, then he has another idea. And he almost doesn't sometimes know which ideas to cut out. So he puts them all in 
I, I think I would say it's something like this in the book. I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like a film made by a man who's slightly worried he's never going to make another film. So he's going to put every idea he has into that one movie. And it just, it almost can't sustain the weight. But at the same time, it makes the film absolutely extraordinary because it's just so densely packed with imagery and ideas and, and symbols and um, I mean, I, I find the film really quite quite mesmerizing, to be honest. It, it always feels like a puzzle that needs to be solved, and I feel like I'm nowhere near solving it. No, I, I, I don't think anyone is. I actually think, I don't even think Borman is, to be very honest. And I think he'd be the first to admit that, because um, it, do, it does kind of... It is like a jigsaw in that respect, and it's just so full of illusions, and you have to really start picking the film apart yet that that one any the, the rosebud moment if you will not that it ever really worked in citizen kane as um never quite comes through there's not that that one image at the end that's supposed to tell us what all of this means and in citizen kane you know rosebud's supposed to tie life together but as the film says itself you can't sum up a man's life in one word you just can't find that one adjective or something just to describe someone or to just try and unpack its many i think meanings and sometimes i think those meanings can possibly even be contradictory i know on one level it's 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 very much an ecological film but on another level it's a film that's quite um it certainly has an interesting relationship with technology it's it's a film that's um i think on one level a work of science fiction but then obviously is a science fiction film made by a man who's not particularly enamored of science fiction i mean it moves in places more towards fantasy but yet has these sort of dystopian elements it's so it's even a difficult film to pin down in terms of its genre. I know more than one critic have called it a western, which I guess it is on some levels. Um, and of course, it's you know it's all of these things, and it's John Borman's version of The Wizard of Oz, which makes it even stranger. Yeah, even though I've tried to find where, other than the the giant head, where The Wizard of Oz kind of comes into play with the film. Well, I think, well, firstly, I think Borman's always just had a keen interest in that particular film, um, but also the, the novels, the um, the Baum novels. And I, I mean, you probably know about is that he almost made an animated film of The Wizard of Oz for, in the last sort of ten years. And sadly, it just it was fully storyboarded and scripted, but then it, it just literally stopped at that point. And Borman uh, actually told me he didn't, he didn't really know why. So I think there's always been an interest in it. But to me, the connection between Zardoz and the story of the Wizard of Oz is, I mean, there's a few. Firstly, obviously, there's the title, um, which Zardoz is basically Wizard of Oz with the, the first few letters really taken off of it. But also, um, it's really that notion of Arthur Frame, the, uh, the, if you will, the, the kind of, the character who sets the entire narrative rolling, one of the, one of the Eternals, um, played by Niall Buggy, and his character essentially feeds the idea into Sean Connery's character's head to pass through the vortex into the land of the Eternals and essentially to bring death there. But really, to me, that character seems like an extension of the wizard in the MGM film and in the Bound novels. Um, essentially, kind of a, a, a deeply powerful figure, but one who's also a charlatan, yet kind of knows that he's a bit of a sort of Jungian trickster, but also he's a confidence man. And I guess what confidence men do is they fill you with confidence, the way that the wizard does at the end of the, the Wizard of Oz, when he tells you know, the scarecrow that he did have a brain, or he tells the cowardly lion that he did have courage. Essentially, frame uh, gives Zed that knowledge um, or gives him the ability to believe in his own sort of knowledge and courage etc so I think that's certainly part of it but also it's it's a it's an odd one but um, <laughs> Zed in a way is Dorothy 
and and it's, it's kind of hard to imagine Sean Connery um, playing the same character as Judy Garland, really. But there is there is an element, I think, of of Zed kind of going from this rather bleak, desolate land where he lives outside the vortex, which is like Kansas, into this extremely colourful world like ours. And while you don't have that kind of great transition from black and white to colour that you do in the 1939 film, um, Jeffrey Unsworth's cinematography certainly does play on it. The, the palette, aside from blood red, is extremely drained in the kind of lands out with the vortex, but inside the vortex, when you're with the Eternals, everything is extremely colourful and kind of colour-coordinated. So I think there is there, there are those elements as well. Um, but also just the idea of it being this kind of journey that leads at the end to kind of coming face to face with this sort of magician trickster figure who you can't really uh, entirely understand or take seriously is something that, that Borman definitely extrapolates from the stories and from um, and from the 1939 film. Is it true that Borman was involved in a project to bring the Lord of the Rings to the screen? Absolutely. And that would have been... I think all in all, we spent about two years on that, and it was between Deliverance and Zardos, really. Um, I think it, it probably started somewhere before Deliverance, it being sort of two years, its sort of entire run, and it was really a case of Tol- J.R. Tolkien was very reluctant to make a film of Lord of the Rings, but um, Tolkien had quite a few children who themselves have quite a few grandchildren and he really just wanted to create a sort of trust fund for his grandchildren when they were gone, when he was gone. So I think in the late 60s, probably about 1968, he reluctantly sold the film rights to Lord of the Rings, knowing full well how popular the novels were then, particularly amongst um, the hippie movement and uh, knowing that, you know, that that money would, would sort of help his family. So he sold the rights. I think Borman corresponded with him. Um, I don't know if they ever actually met, but Borman was very keen to make the film that would eventually become Excalibur. He really wanted to make a film with the Arthurian legends. And I think that that was really Borman's own kind of personal quest. If, if all of his films are about men, women sort of searching for an elusive object or trying to achieve this elusive goal. I think Borman's was always to make a film of the Arthurian legends. And he was offered Lord of the Rings because um, the producer sort of saw the similarity between the two projects. Said, look, you want to make this film that's kind of essentially about, you've got wizards and you've got you know, a young man and you've got sort of quest narrative. Well, we've got the rights to Lord of the Rings. Why don't you work on that? And I think for him, it was a substitute um, for doing the Arthurian legends. He was a fan of Tolkien, but I don't think Tolkien's ever meant quite as much to him as as Mallory or the Arthurian legends have, but he worked on that um, kind of as a, as a substitute, as a way of saying, if I never make the film that would eventually become Excalibur, at least I've done something close. So while he never got the film off the ground, it was fully scripted. I've, I've read a couple of different drafts of the screenplay. Um, very interesting. And I, extremely brisk pacing because he had to um part of his stipulation is he had to make all three films into one movie that couldn't be longer than three hours so um it's a rush to say the least but very, i mean it's very interesting in places as well and obviously it's it's full of you know kind of some very striking descriptions of images and you can kind of see what Borman would have done with it and he particularly is interested in that ecological subtext and the the sort of the forest that moves and the ends. I think that that would have been really quite quite brilliant. But um, he said a lot of the special effects were a bit of a struggle. And yes, it was possible that um, children wearing beards might have played the dwarves, etc. And he was very glad in the end that he didn't make it and that you know Peter Jackson did 20-odd, 25 years later when the technology 
uh, particularly computer technology is far more up to the task of create, recreating middle life. But I think what comes out of that experience of two years working on a project that isn't made is two things. One, trying to condense three enormous novels into one movie was great preparation for making Excalibur, where he takes Mallory's Mort Arthur, which is a... It's, I just call it Baggy Monster is Unfair. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary book, but it's, um, it's certainly not a quick read, and it's about 800-odd pages and, and probably divided across about 35 parts and God knows how many chapters, and he manages to reduce that, I think, quite successfully into one, two-and-a-half-hour movie. And the other thing that's left out, out of it is it's really all the, the sort of interest in Tolkien and Tolkien's philosophy and the ideas of immortality that he talks about in, in Lord of the Rings and... Um, certainly just the kind of the, the magic of it um, is all very much in Borman's mind in the early 1970s when Lord of the Rings doesn't happen as a film and he's got a big hit on his hands with Deliverance and is really in a position to make the film that he wants to make and that's where Zardoz comes in. I think everything that Borman thought about um, in terms of the Tolkien project or a lot of what he thought about in terms of the Tolkien project finds its way into Zardoz. So it's a science fiction film in theory, um, but actually it's more of a fantasy film, I think, in its substance. And it owes a lot to Tolkien. It, of course, owes a lot to Stanley Kubrick's 2001. It owes a bit to Tarkovsky's Solaris, uh, two films Borman's very, very um, sort of keen on. Um, it owes something to William Morris and News From Nowhere, but I think Tolkien's, in, ter- in terms of the literature, I think it's the key influence there. And you can see it in the, you know, the film's interest in you know, what it's like to, what would it be like to live forever? You can see it in the film's interest in ecology, certainly. And you can see it in, you know, the, the notions like magic rings and the kind of collective unconscious that the um, characters have, which is not that, um, in, the, in the, the vortex, which is not that different to what's going on with the, the sort of elfin races in Tolkien. So I think it's, it would be wrong to say it was, you know, Borman's version of Lord of the Rings, but there's certainly a lot of Tolkien in it. I've always seen kind of a similarity between Zardoz and Excalibur, especially when it comes to that the mask idea. The sort of the, the way the stone head looks and, and the, the Mordred's helmet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, the, the stone head is actually Borman's face. It was, um, I remember, it probably was his set designer who I think he's still working with now, actually. It's Tony Pratt, who he'd worked with um, probably back in the BBC days and started off as an assistant on things like Hell in the Pacific. And they just needed to do a, a cast for the head. And Borman just, you know, being a, somebody who leads from the front, just said, I'll do it, and stuck his head into the into the, into the mold. So that is actually Borman's head. But it, the, the, the look of that is very, very similar to what you'll eventually get in Mordred's helmet at the end of Excalibur. You're absolutely right. And I think, for me anyway, um, the design is... It's hard to pin down exactly, but I think there's quite a bit of William Blake to it. Um, if you look at some of William Blake's illustrations, particularly... Um, the Noba Daddy, I think there's the there's a lion, which may, may be a, um, Daniel and the Lion, I'm trying to go off the top of my head, but it certainly has a kind of Blakean quality. Uh, and a lot of the, there's, there's quite a bit of Blake and Excalibur as well, but actually, I think the armor in Excalibur, rather than the helmet, is actually based on a, a series of paintings by Klimt, um, part of his sort of Beethoven frieze in Vienna. And I think the, 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 re, the sort of high side, um, the high-plated armor on the shoulders, etc., actually comes from a series of Klimt paintings. But Borman's very interested in that. I mean, he's a very visual filmmaker. I think that's um, one of the key things that you have to get your, your head around when you watch his films. I mean, quite like 
his contemporary Ken Russell. I mean, he's 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 good with words. And I actually Borman, I think, if you read his autobiography and some of his um, later writing, he's actually a tremendously gifted writer. But as a filmmaker, I think he's much more comfortable with pictures. And paintings are never far away. Um, so I think that the Stonehead certainly relates between um, is Blake, but then relates forward to Excalibur. But also the, the use of the, the pre-Raphaelites, I think, is very prevalent in both films. I mean, he's quite interested in the, the pre-Raphaelite painters, firstly, because they were a, you know, a group of British artists, um, but also a group of British artists who were very, very attracted, like he was, to the Arthurian legends um, and sort of notions of chivalry and the, you know, the, sort of the legend of Camelot. So... The, I mean, there's also quite a lot of references in both Excalibur and um, Zardos to paintings like um, the, uh, the, the, the John Everett Millet's painting of the, the death of Ophelia, um, Ophelia drowning, and you can see when um, Avalo is, who's really the the third uh, major female part in the film, Sally Ann Newton plays her, um, she's shot in the fountain at the end by Zed, which begins the kind of orgy of death. When she kind of rises from the water, it actually visually quotes the, the Millet painting. And you have exactly the same thing with the Lady in the Lake in Excalibur. So there's the visual motifs, I think, move between the films. Um, but that, that interest in painting, I think, also unites them. You, know, you could say that, that Zed's hand rising from the corn in the stone head with his um, revolver in his hand is very similar to the image of the Lady of the Lake's hand emerging from the lake with a sword at the beginning of Excalibur, which is also quite similar to that, that really terrifying final shot of Deliverance where the hand just rises from the, right, the lake. So, you know, the, the visual motifs, I think, certainly recur from movie to movie. So, as you said before, if the films don't feel, uh, if, if they don't sort of generically seem to hold together, um, that each film seems very different from the one that came before it, his, his, he does actually return to a lot of the same images. And you can really start to find them from film to film. What were some of the things that you found out while you were researching Zardoz? On one level, I just I was I was absolutely just blown over by some of the technical aspects that I found out. Uh, the film was made for a million dollars, absolutely flat out a million dollars, which I would still say at the time was quite quite a low budget. I mean, um, when he was making Deliverance, he made Deliverance for two million dollars, so it was half the budget of the film he worked on before, and. Um, he had to really do it all himself. And actually, when you take into account that Sean Connery cost $100,000, so Sean Connery was a tenth of the price of the movie. So the film was really made for 900000 I think it does look remarkably, remarkably good. But there's just one or two moments in the film um, that just as, you know, when I was first watching the film, when I was much younger, before I'd really done any research, I, I always kind of wondered how did they do that? And there's the, the great scene um, in... Well, essentially, they sort of enter the, the, the crystal. It sounds very mad when you try and describe anything that's going on in, in, in Zardos. But they essentially sort of enter into um, the crystal, and Zed is given kind of the knowledge of the world. That sequence is is absolutely extraordinary because it's all it's all filmed with um, Sarah Kestelman, who plays May, and um, her sort of handmaidens kind of surround Zed, and they have images projected onto them, paintings sculptures, text, um, 
equations, you know, things that almost look like binary or Sanskrit, and it just looks absolutely extraordinary. And you know, and they, the characters essentially look like living paintings or sculptures. And I really had no idea how they did this. And then I actually found some um, call sheets from the film, um, from from those very days of shooting, and it was done extremely simply. It, they actually were just using um, a slide carousel and projectors, but focusing it in an extremely... I mean, it must have taken ages to line up each of the actresses and project these images onto them and get the right contours and the right focus. But it was done that simply. I mean, most of the effects in the film are in-camera, if you will, rather than post-production. I think Jeffrey Armsworth and Borman did just an amazing job of creating the look of the film. Um, it has not just the colors, I'm saying just the textures of it, but doing it in the most simple way possible and ways that often just... Um, Really harking back to the the early days of cinema, you know, Georges Méliès, the the, the the sort of great inventor of the notion of cinema as not just a form of entertainment but also a form of escapism and fantasy. And and Borman was, I think, very influenced by Méliès in that film, just trying to create the most the most simple but effective in camera um, effects. And I think they hold up remarkably well. I mean, sometimes actually, because I think special effects date very quickly, and because the special effects in Zardoz were actually um, themselves very old-fashioned and um, simple techniques, they still look brilliant today. But that was one thing I found out, because I was always trying to work out how, how the hell they did that. There were some other interesting ones. I mean, initially, um, I'm going to get the number wrong, but initially Zed's name wasn't Zed. It was, um, I think it was 2020. They were given numbers. But the, the number 2020, took you, I think, takes you very close to 2001. In fact, his number actually might have been 2002 um, rather than 2020. But I think Kubrick... Kubrick's film had a lot to do um, with prompting Borman to move into science fiction or wanting to make a sort of science fiction film. Um, I thought that was interesting just to find an earlier script draft that Zed wasn't called Zed. He had this numerical name. I think as the film progressed, Borman tries to kind of move himself slightly away from uh, the sort of Kubrick influence and the other another influence I said Solaris I think was quite key um, when Borman was asked to put his top 10 together for Sight and Sound I think 2001 and Tarkovsky Solaris were both in that list uh, but in, a, in another earlier script draft the music at the beginning isn't Beethoven because uh, he uses the Allegretto from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony in the film very effectively I think it was actually a Bach organ um well, it was a Bach organ piece. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it was one, it was one of the core preludes arranged for organ. And of course, um, the script would have been written in the earlier part of the 70s. And by the time the film was shot, Solaris was out and released. And Solaris really only features one recurring piece of music, which is actually a Bach um, organ prelude. <laughs> and I think he just thought it was too close to home to actually do, do exactly the same thing that Tarkovsky did. So he in the end went for Beethoven, which I think maybe works, actually works much better because the, um, the Allegretto and the Seventh Symphony has that kind of, even though it's not actually a funeral march, um, it's actually supposed to be a dance. People tend to associate it with a, with a kind of funereal quality. I think David Monroe's arrangement of it in the film is absolutely extraordinary. Um, that's the other thing I found out rambling here, but I managed to go to the um, Royal College of Music where David Monroe's papers are. Um, sadly, Monroe killed himself at a very, very early age and didn't make nearly, uh, didn't do nearly as much as he should have really, I think, but um, it seemed quite, quite unstable in many ways, but also um, quite brilliant. But he 
scored, um, I think Zonas is really, I think, one of the few films you could say that he sort of scored in its entirety. But he's actually one of the key sort of figures in the the early music movement and the period-informed music practice movement um, in the United Kingdom. And he starts really in the early 70s, um, releasing these very interesting recordings of medieval music, music kind of between the medieval period and, say, 1700s. And he ends up working as a musical arranger and advisor on a couple of British shows, um, Elizabeth R., um, which would be about 71, and then Henry V and the Six Wives, the BBC production. And then actually Ken Russell uses him as the period music advisor in The Devils. So he does, he does about half the music to The Devils. And then he makes, um, he does exactly the same role for Richard Lester on The Three Musketeers, the period music advisor. But Zardoz is really one of the, the, the only feature film I think he absolutely scores. And what's interesting about it is that he uses this bizarre combination of instruments. Um, Zed has his kind of, his quite, it's quite fortissimo. It's this rather bold five or six note leitmotif that runs through the score, but it's played on, it's played on extremely bass instruments, you know, bassoons, sackba, um, but also on electronic instruments, but played in, in a very sort of, um, you know, low register. So kind of associating that the music with, with Connery, this kind of very masculine, very deep force, but, um, he uses this interesting combination of very, very new technology and medieval instruments, which I think is perfect for, um, or Munro perfectly understood what the film was twi- trying to do, because it's a futuristic film, yet the future is the past. Um, and, there, and you can say there's a few other science fiction novels that do that. I think William Morris's News from Nowhere is probably the most prevalent example and probably one that Borman um, would, would have known. But this idea that this is a film set thousands of years in the future, but actually this is not a future that relies on technology. It's actually a future that kind of almost um, eschews technology. It moves away from technology towards stuff that's seemingly much more primitive, yet underneath uh, the world of the of the vortex, you actually see how much technology they, they actually have access to. And I think Munro's music, through that combination of acoustic period instruments, and, you know, literally medieval instruments, and the most modern, up to date kind of Stockhausen influenced electronica, really nails that. And that that was a fascinating part of the research to me. It was just spending time looking through. David Monroe's papers and cue sheets and his scores and the way that he and Borman really, really tried to create um, a genuine soundscape for this movie, um, light motifs for the characters and, and just trying to get sound and image to somehow kind of marry harmoniously on the soundtrack, which I, I think they do. It's, um, it really comes together in that, that fantastic sequence I mentioned before where, they're, where all the, the women have the, um, the paintings essentially projected onto them, but the the the, the sound at that point is, is absolutely amazing. It's this very dense montage of quotations from you know George Bernard Shaw and Mao Zedong and you know mathematical equations and snippets from Beethoven and uh, Mozart's clarinet concerto, and it, it's 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 an absolute whirlwind of sound and image kind of coming together, and I, I find that that sequence particularly amazing. One of the things I really find interesting about the film is that it almost seems like the vortex is a matriarchy with May and Consuela being very empowered where Friend and Frayne are fairly disenchanted. You're absolutely right, actually. I mean, it seems like, and to me anyway, it's a, a it's a matriarchy, certainly. And I, I would say May and Consuela and Avalo, I suppose, were the three three essential matriarchs at the head of everything and one kind of represents a sort of one is the more 
spiritual side and one one's got the more mm. pragmatic legalistic side and eventually you'll see um uh, Consuela the Charlotte Rampling character kind of you know leading leading the mortals into battle really and she's got the more sort of militaristic side but the men are extremely even the ones who aren't already called apathetic are extremely apathetic and I think um, it wouldn't be far pushed to say all impotent as well there's a there's an implication at the beginning as well that Consuela and um, May have had probably had a sort of lesbian relationship of some kind that may that may have called. And it is interesting, but I think it kind of argues that when uh, if you sort of take war and because they don't reproduce either because they're immortal as they need to reproduce. I guess if you, if you take away those those macho compulsions of men to breed and to fight, then men will essentially start becoming much more effeminate. Um, and if you if you kind of but at the same time, and with the women actually strike me as being quite masculine figures. But yes, you're absolutely right. The men are are a very sort of apathetic, impotent lot. And then of course Sean Connery strides through wearing that costume, <laughs> which I, I, you know, the costume design is actually by um, Borman's wife. Um, I think it's, it's one of the two films she worked on the costume department for. It, it always seemed a bold choice to me, but not necessarily the right one. I so once you sort of show people those production stills of Sean Connery and the leather thong and bandolero with knee-high boots it, it's just a bit too kinky really um <laughs> it, it does it does have a tendency to make people giggle but of course that's that's part of it part of the film's great charm is that for all of its enormous ideas i mean and it, i think it is saying quite a lot about what would happen to us if we did live forever and how boring that would be on what you know the, the idea he said um i think one once said you know if you if you have to live forever people just start to long for a good death and that's really partly what the film's saying, but also the idea if you do take conquest and war away from men, then they will become, they will kind of regress and become more effeminate. For all of its really interesting ideas, I do think, like most Borman films, you can kind of hear him chuckling in the background and not and refusing to take himself entirely seriously. And that comes through a little bit in Sean Connery's costumes, but it certainly comes through in that great image of kind of men being feminized, where Sean Connery, in order to get him past the uh, the guards, is is actually put into a wedding dress and veil. Um, and it, it's the most incongruously hilarious thing I think I've ever seen in the movie. Sean Connery with, you know, the enormous mustache dressed as a bride. <laughs> and you just think at that moment, you realize that, that Borman is partly kind of playing the, the metaphysical Joker, which I think he does all the way through Excalibur as well. Because uh, Excalibur is an extraordinary movie. You know, it's, it's, it's probably the closest thing that British cinema has to a genuinely mythic movie that's trying to kind of you know it, it, it's all of it sort of sorcery and fantasy it's actually I, I kind of think it's kind of like John Ford it's trying to sort of find the matter of Britain it's trying to talk about kind of the legendary roots of British culture and the way that films like The Man Shot Liberty Balance and Stagecoach and The Searchers try and do the same thing with America yet Borman, for all of that kind of metaphysical seriousness and an attempt to sort of find or capture the sort of mystical roots of Britain on film, he then can't just resist having Nicole Williamson get hit on the head by something or fall backwards into a pond and have these kind of slapstick jokes with Merlin because he can never quite take all of even his own ideas completely seriously, which I think is a very British, a very, very British disease, actually, um, and not not an entirely uncharming one either. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's. I think it's very interesting the way that the men are presented in the vortex, and then the the way that they're starkly contrasted from the with the men outside, the brutals um, that Zed is essentially the leader of, men who literally just kill and rape. 
um, and on one level, in one society, you essentially have masculinity completely unchained and unfettered. It just, you know, you, you, if you want a woman, you take her. If you want to kill, you kill. And on the other hand, you have people who just literally couldn't do either. You know, they can't kill because no one in that society can die. Um, and they can't have, there's no reason to have sex. There's no biological imperative to. So essentially they don't. And they, they don't even have the power to kill themselves. Because if they do kill themselves, they'll just regenerate. So I think it's very interesting the way it looks at that dichotomy between men and women. You were talking about how the movie is packed with so many ideas and themes and everything. There's one point, and I think it's in the movie, I know for sure it's in the book, they talk about the land being kind of a spaceship and that they're kind of preparing for space flight with this whole idea of keeping people alive for so long. Did that kind of just get dropped or what, am I dreaming that part? No, you're, you're not. I, I, it, it just basically gets dropped from the film. Um, I think the part of the part of the implication was that they, this, this is, this is my memory of it. And it does come through a little bit in the, the novelization he wrote with um, Bill Stair after the film was made. And it's, it's dealt with more in some of the earlier script drafts. But from, from my memory, what it was is that the earth essentially is depleted and there's, there are no more resources. However, the, the kind of immortality um, was a way of, they are thinking of a way to kind of move off of earth to kind of colonize a new land and start over. But actually instead this, this concept of immortality leads them to kind of create the vortex instead. And, the, the, and it becomes a case of the, the people inside the vortex, the immortals, create a, a, a new earth that's essentially green and fertile and fecund. But everything outside of that is a kind of post-apocalyptic nuclear wasteland. So instead of leaving planet Earth, what they do is they just um, put all their resources into making one small part of it livable again. But everything else is everyone outside of that is essentially slave labor to make sure that that one tiny part works. So it becomes, um, it very much, I think, becomes a, a metaphor, really, for the haves and the have-nots. And I, I know that, that Borman really would, was very interested, because this, this again comes through in some of his later films, um, particularly The Emerald Forest and, and In My Country. Very interested in that, that imbalance between the Western world and if you, what you want, might want to call the, the third world. The idea that there's a small portion of people on the earth who have everything and a large proportion of people on the earth who have absolutely nothing and that things are in many ways n so unevenly distributed and that, and that medicine in the Western world was prolonging lives to hitherto unthought of levels. People could you know, quite happily expect their, their life to go on for 80, 90 years, whereas actually in the third world, life was still, you know, mean, nasty, brutish and short. I think that's another thing that's going on in Zardoz is that sort of political notion of how, you know, we, we very much have a culture of the haves and the have-nots, those who can kind of live slightly um, lazy, leisurely existences, living forever, and those who basically toil you know, are controlled and, and eventually will die very, very young. Um, so I think that comes through as well um, in the movie. But it's, again, it's just very much, very much in the sidelines. But yeah, I think a lot of ideas were dropped because <laughs> it's just there, there's too many. I mean, there, there's you know, there's already enough for um, a, a dozen movies there. I mean, I, I remember in, in in the book writing an enormously long description of the scene where. Zed ends up in Arthur Frame's room um, for the first time. And uh, it's where he first encounters the, the, the ring that essentially projects 
information onto it, and um, he sees the plans for what will become Zardoz and the Stone Head, etc. And just if you pause the film, it's wonderful to be able to pause the film actually, because I think if you watch this in the cinema, you'd never catch, you wouldn't catch a zillionth of it. Um, the walls are just covered in objects that may have some bearing or have influenced both Borman, but also the character um, of Arthur Frayne in creating Zardoz. So there's a picture of Harry Houdini, um, other sort of magicians. There's there's a sort of evolutionary chart that ends with a question mark, and you realize later on in that film that question mark's going to be Z. Um, you know, there's... Um, I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a... I think it is. It might be... Um, it be Matisse. It's, um, there's a sort of slight... There's a surrealist painting... Um, of a, of a floating rock, which actually becomes kind of the basis of the shots of the floating Zardoz. So, I mean, you really can, it's kind of Borman and his design are showing you all the things that they used when they created this mythical god, but they actually use it in the narrative itself. And there's just so many just objects and images and references that you could then take and run with. And I think that's really what the whole, you know, it's like, it's a metaphor really for watching the whole film. Sean Connery walks into the, the room and looks completely baffled by the sheer visual overload of all this stuff. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel when I watch Zardoz. It's just like, how many ideas can you cram into one movie? Thanks to Brian Hoyle. You can hear more of our discussion over at the Projection Booth's website, projection-booth.com. You can hear Mr. Hoyle talk about why he thinks that Exorcist II, The Heretic, is a better film than The Exorcist. We'll also have a link to where you can buy the cinema of John Borman. Now, getting back to Zardoz, Brian mentioned the drafts of the screenplays and novelization of Zardoz, and I've talked a little bit about that. Now, it's true that in the script of Zardoz that I read that Zed was not called Zed, but he just had the number 2030 as his name. And I, I don't know if they changed it when Connery took the role versus when Burt Reynolds was originally thought of for the role, which would have been another epic mustache. Um, but I think it would have been kind of weird having 007 playing 2030 since they'd already kind of, you know, given him a number and taken away his name. But I like to the idea Brian mentions that you know maybe it was a play on 2001 just a little bit more kind of thing because really they were comparing this thing to 2001 quite a bit in the ads and everything and I'll, we played a radio ad at the top of the show that definitely does that which was narrated by Rod Serling by the way so that wasn't just a, a sound alike but not only was this influenced by what was going on, and we talked a lot about the popular culture and everything, but it's influenced a lot of popular culture. When I went out and I started doing research of this movie and looking for music to play during this, I happened to find a whole raft of music with Zardoz in the title. So as a special treat for folks, I put together a Zardoz music mix, which will be available, and this thing runs like an hour and a half long. So if you enjoy Zardoz... Hopefully you will like this music mix, and there's definitely a lot of the Godhead voice uh, mixed in there, which is a fantastic thing. Josh, I know you listened to the audio commentary, that, that story that Borman tells about having to sign a paper before the, what was it, the communist newspaper in Paris would... Uh, 
praise right. him, praise the film or something? How did that go? No, I think you've got it. I think okay. that's exactly because they was. wanted to say, and I think he screws up the story because they they said like he had to swear that it wasn't Lennon's head that they based on, but really, I mean, it looks like Marks flying around, right? Which is funny because I've often heard of uh, young communists being called you know red diaper wearing people. So there you go. Really? <laughs> yeah, there used to be a right wing talk show host that used to talk about. Red diaper doper babies, as he used to call them, you know, communist leaning uh, pot smokers. Red diaper doper babies. They were raised in left wing homes. That's the red diaper baby. That's a well known phrase. But I added the other D, which is doper. If you take a red diaper baby and then you add dope for 30 or so years, and what you wind up with is a red diaper doper baby with an extremely noxious human being who will gut a nation and not even know they're doing it. Looking at the film the first time, in terms of the design and the ideas and things like that, and of course, um, I had referenced earlier Brave New World and Aldous Huxley, the only other film that I can think of that's as kind of audacious as this, although it doesn't deal with the future, it deals with the past, is Ken Russell's The Devils. And for some reason, when I was watching this thing, I was thinking, you know, they just don't make them like this. Like, Ken Russell's The Devils got as you know, cut to ribbons, and that's one that I'd love to do on the show sometime. But just in terms of ideas, uh, some of the things that they're talking about in terms of uh, society and faith and religion and, and, and all of that stuff, uh, for, for some reason, I just was thinking the devils. I don't know why. Well, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the societal issues and concerns that were an influence on the film. But I think something that doesn't really uh, factor into the story at all, but that definitely influences the visual style, is uh, the drug culture of the time. You know, there's no denying that this film in segments is very psychedelic and uh, very much a part of that world. I don't know if it was intended to appeal to that culture, but it certainly seems heavily designed after uh, other kind of drug culture films that came, you know, a little bit before this. I can get that, but to me it almost seems like the negative side of drug culture, you know what I mean? Where when we talk about 2001 or we talk about earlier psychedelic films, it's much lighter, it's more fun. This to me almost seems like a bad trip. Right, yeah. I think one of the the visual reference points that you could make is I think there's some sequences in uh, Roger Corman's The Trip that I think mirror this film visually a little bit. I mean, I, I think acid films and films that were designed to kind of recreate or uh, stimulate the experience of an acid trip. I think you see a lot of that in the visual design, especially when you get into the vortex and some of the things that are going on in there, uh, the flashing lights and, and all that. It reminds me a lot of uh, some of the Corman films and some of the other kind of experimental or drug-influenced films of the time. Not so much in terms of the tone, but just in terms of the look. I was also thinking of the Hall of Mirrors in this and uh, thinking Enter the Dragon. Right, of course. And of course, Lady from Shanghai. At the I like same how time, you right? go to <laughs> Enter the Dragon more than Lady from Shanghai. <laughs> well, more people are going to know Enter the Dragon. I knew Enter the Dragon first before uh, I saw Lady from Shanghai. So there you go. Well, I think it's entirely possible that uh, Robert Klaus saw Zardoz and uh, that could have inspired uh, that Enter the Dragon sequence. Who knows? Yeah, I see what you guys are saying, especially when you talk about this kind of era of psychedelia, the women who are helping Zed out at the end, the whole idea of the touch teaching, and they've got all these things projected on them, really kind of, they look like living paintings, and it reminded me of like the body painting that we see 
you know, these days, especially, you know, done with airbrushing and everything, but just kind of an extreme form of the body painting that we would have seen these kind of red diaper wearing love children running around the streets of San Francisco doing. So would you recommend it? Zardoz, do you recommend it? And who would you recommend this to? The second part of your question is the key. Uh, I would recommend it, but there's a limited segment of uh, the population that I would recommend it to. I think I would recommend it to people that are more interested in uh, the overall, the cumulative effect of a film versus, you know, the success of the story itself. You know, any friends of mine that are adventurous enough in their film going that they can enjoy an audacious and unique film for what it accomplishes, even if it doesn't ultimately add up to a completely satisfying whole. I think people that are looking for things that they've never seen anywhere else in films, people that are looking for something that uh, challenges expectations, those are the sorts of people that I would recommend Zardoz to. I think anybody looking for a fun Saturday night watching a movie is probably better steered towards something else. Deliverance. For sure. I think I, Deliverance is a film I would recommend to almost anybody. And this I would recommend to almost nobody. <laughs> but, but I would passionately, passionately and enthusiastically recommend it to the very few people that I believe would love it. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I think that there's a lot of stuff going on in here. I don't know if it's altogether successful, but I would definitely recommend it to people. And those people... Gosh, I mean, when I look at this film, it brings up a lot of interesting questions, and it doesn't necessarily give you a whole lot of answers. And when I think about movies like that, the first one that popped into my mind was The Holy Mountain. And it's nowhere near the depth and, I don't want to say insanity, because it's just, there's definitely a method to Jodorowsky's madness going through that. But there's that kind of idea of a movie that isn't necessarily easy to watch that is going to give you all the answers the first time through i think holy mountain is heavier but it also may be more fun to watch especially with a group zardas it's going to be something where uh yeah saturday night probably isn't good maybe like a thursday night kind of thing where you can stay up and pay attention to it because it really does demand that you give it 100 percent of your attention no, I'm going to give you that on Holy Mountain. It, I, I didn't even think about it until you brought it up, but it does seem to live in that same sort of area as, as Jodorowsky. And I, I would say that if, if you like Jodorowsky, this would probably work for you. It is one, though, like I said at the beginning, for me that when I watched it, I didn't appreciate it all that much when I watched it. I appreciated it after it was over. And I had time to think about it and process certain things and sort of the symbolism and, okay, well, this is this and this is that. And kind of thinking it through after, which which I think is the sign of a good film. Because most of the stuff that you're going to see in the theater or most of the stuff that you're going to see on an average day, it just, just goes right over you. It's just entertainment. It doesn't stick with you. It doesn't give you anything to think about a day later, two days later, a week later. And the one thing that this film has done for me, even though it's not something that I, I think I'll go back to all that often, or it's not something that I think is uh, all that enjoyable to watch in one sitting, it is something that did give me things to think about after it was over. 
the way you describe it, it sounds very much like the first time I saw Pootie Tang. Which, as I, I'm going to go on the record right now, I've said this on Twitter and Facebook, and I've gotten a lot of people that agree with me. Now that Louis C.K. is Louis C.K., and he's as big as he is, they should allow him to go back in and make Pootie Tang the way that he wanted, as opposed to having him taken away. But that's a completely different discussion. goes back to our Magnificent Ambersons discussion of last year, and I think that, that Pootie Tang is kind of Louis C.K.'s Magnificent Ambersons, but unlike Ambersons, which I think both you and I, we didn't necessarily think was 100% of a success in its chopped up form, I still think that the Pootie Tang that exists is a perfect film. So I would like to see what Louis C.K. could have brought to it. So I think having a director's cut would be good, but they should do like a Brazil type of box set where you get the original plus you get what the director's original vision was. That's right. See, we just went from Sardaz to Jodorowsky, to Aldous Huxley, to Magnuson Ambersons, to Pootie Tang. So there you go. Welcome to the projection booth, ladies and gentlemen. And with that, we're going to play a preview for next week's show. It was a New York phenomenon. It was to gays what Deep Throat was to straights. But there were as many women, really, as there were men, couples and everything, because it had become very mainstream, very odd phenomenon. Oh, it was all over New York. I mean, everybody in New York, it was in the papers and stuff like that. So. I don't remember any of that. It wasn't all over my part of New York. And I think it gave the audiences, made them comfortable about going to see something. It gave them, there was a certain amount of respectability around it uh, that made it okay to just be adventurous and go see what he was up to and what this picture was all about. <laughs> and it was a little bit different than we expected, <laughs> but I thought it was great. And Roger was like a little more, uh, I don't know, laid back about it. I was, know, well, I was, yeah. I mean, we, we sat on the third row <laughs> over to the side. And it was, it was boys in the sand, boys in the aisles, boys everywhere. <laughs> That's right. We're back next week with a look at Wakefield Pool's seminal, and we do mean seminal, adult film, Boys in the Sand. You think Porno Chic started with Deep Throat? Well, think again. We'll chat with Mr. Poole, and we'll be joined in the discussion by Jim Tashinsky, who's the director of I Always Said Yes, a documentary on Wakefield Pool. Now, before we head out, I want to thank this week's special guest, Brian Hoyle, for talking to us about his book, The Cinema of John Borman, and, of course, our guest co-host, Mr. Josh Johnson. Now, Josh, last time we talked to you, VHS Extravaganza, it was so popular we had to do two of them. We discussed Rewind This, your documentary about the golden age of VHS. What is the latest, sir? Well, since we last spoke, uh, the film has played all over the world on festivals and then event theatrical bookings. And it's uh, now available digitally for everybody to download, purchase. They can get it directly from our website, rewindthismovie.com. And we're heading into the home video release now. So on January 14th, it'll be available on DVD with lots of special features and also uh, a limited edition run of videotapes. So, uh, Everybody can uh, see it either online or at home, however you prefer to watch it. It will be available in every conceivable format and every possible way as of January 14th. And that's just a few days away, so you're going to want to make sure that you get over to that website and get yourself a copy of it, especially VHS purists to think that you know the sun rises and sets on these uh, magnificent tapes that you have. Absolutely. Uh, please do head over to our website and check it out. And 
uh, there's an audio commentary that we recorded specifically for the DVD. Uh, so if you want to get even more information than what is contained within the film between the deleted scenes and the commentary, there's a lot for you to dig into and mull over. So yeah, if you want to hear more from Josh, definitely go back and check out the VHS extravaganza episode, that kind of mammoth episode. And also Josh has been on a few more shows. He was on our electric light and blue episode, American astronaut and the hitcher. So check those out. They're all available via the archives over at the projection booth website projection-booth.com so thanks again josh for coming on and talking zardoz with us you know normally i tell people when they are on skype with us that they don't have to turn on the camera but when i saw that you were there with the bandoliers and the red diaper i said okay so it's been a pleasure watching you for the last hour sir anyway thanks for everyone for listening to the projection booth if you want to return the favor stop on by itunes and give us a review leave us some stars and if you're feeling really generous there's a donate button over at our website projection-booth.com we're not kardashians or anything but our love can be bought with money centuries ago in primitive times before the dawn of civilization there were things that would be inconceivable to us today She can have fine clothes 
take her where she wants to go, go, go. She can own a real fine home. Drowning in Sephardia, she's gone. Dead's dead, baby. Dead's dead.